You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Emily Chang in New York, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. He helped introduce Sheryl Sandberg to Mark Zuckerberg, and the rest, they say, is history. I'll be joined by Roger McNamee to talk about that meeting, Sandberg's legacy, and where the company goes from here. Plus, he sat on Facebook's board for seven years. He's known Sandberg for more than 20. My exclusive conversation with Don Graham on Sandberg's role in building the company and where Meta goes from here. And inflation keeps raging. No relief in sight, according to President Biden. This as the market and tech and crypto stocks in particular keep whipsawing. We will be joined by Sebastian Malaby, author of a new book, The Power Law, about whether Silicon Valley can hold on to its role as a center of power later in the hour. I do want to stay on Sandberg's exit now from Meta and what it means for the company going forward. I'm joined by Jasmine Emberg, principal analyst for Insider Intelligence. She covers social media and influencers. Look, Jasmine, from a business perspective, controversy about the business model aside, how confident are you that Meta can keep the money machine running without Sheryl Sandberg? Well, I think, you know, first of all, we have to address how powerful um, Sandberg was able to build um, Meta's ad business. When she started in 2008, we at eMarketer Now Insider Intelligence estimated that Facebook's worldwide ad revenues were just $250 million. Now, within two years, that figure had grown to $1.3 billion. And flash forward to today, Meta is the second largest digital ad seller in the world after Google. I mean, it's safe to say that uh, the new leadership certainly has their work cut out for them to continue growing uh, Meta's business, but um, it's still in a pretty good place despite all of the, the headwinds that it is facing right now. One Bloomberg take put it like this, Sheryl Sandberg is leaving Facebook at a perilous moment. What is your outlook on how fast Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp can continue to grow while the company is making this massive pivot to the metaverse? 
And you're absolutely right. I mean, Meta is in the process of undergoing this massive shift towards the metaverse. And, you know, it is going to be something that is, you know, pretty far down the line. It is still years and years away for uh, the metaverse to become a reality. And right now, there are some really immediate challenges that Facebook has to grapple with and Instagram has to grapple with as well. That is an ad revenue slowdown. That is a slowdown in user growth. It is also uh, a slowdown in uh, time spent on, on Facebook. Now, Instagram, of course, has been able to pick up the slack for Facebook for quite some time. That's proving to be more difficult. Um, so it's going to require quite a bit of discipline and innovation to continue growing all of Meta's platforms. Jasmine Emberg, Insider Intelligence Principal Analyst. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, obviously, lots remains to be seen. Now, Sandberg might never have been at Facebook if it wasn't for my next guest. He was an early investor and a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. Here's Roger McNamee describing how he helped broker their partnership. It's Sheryl Sandberg. Have you ever met her? He said, I think I shook her hands once at a party. I don't know her at all. And I said, I want to try to get her to come and talk to you about being your chief operating officer. And next thing you know, she goes there as the chief operating officer, at which point, basically, they didn't need me anymore. I mean, she's way smarter than I am. I mean, one of the most, I mean, one of the most capable people I have ever met in any way. Joining me now, Roger McNamee, co-founder of Elevation Partners and author of the book Zucked. Waking up to the Facebook catastrophe. So, Roger, we all know that your feelings about Facebook have changed over the years. I'm so curious what your first thought was when you saw the news that Cheryl was leaving. I take no joy in Cheryl Sandberg's resignation as COO of, of Meta. For me, it's a really complicated situation because Cheryl was, for many years, a friend of mine and somebody I advised. When she worked in the Clinton White House, she was responsible for introducing me to my future business partner, Bono. And for that, I'll always be incredibly grateful. And I tried to reciprocate. She came out to Silicon Valley in 2001, hung out in my office for a few weeks, and I introduced her to John Doerr, who was on the board at Google, which began the process of her going to work at Google and creating the ad engine behind AdWords, which obviously put Google on the map economically. So Cheryl and I were really close. And when she made it clear to me that she was thinking about leaving Google, I thought that Facebook was the right place for her. And so I talked to Mark about it for months. And, you know, he definitely wanted a, a strong number two. And I think he was trying to figure out in his own mind what factors would really matter. But Cheryl had, I thought, two things that really were decisive. The experience at Google was the closest you were ever going to get to the business problem faced at Facebook. And secondly, you know, she had a maturity and an experience both in the political and the business realm that I thought would really complement Mark's strengths. And keep in mind, I think when she went there, they had fewer than 100 million users. And so it was, for me at least, not possible at that time to imagine the kind of harms that eventually came out of Facebook, in part because the business model that did the harm wouldn't be invented for another five years. And so it, you know, I look back on it and I go, oh my God, what could have been? I mean, Cheryl is so talented. You know, she could have both made a very successful company at Google and been a hero for democracy and public health. And How could she have right done that? How could she have done that, Roger? Well, let's take a few simple examples. So in 2017, 
Facebook was implicated by the United Nations in an ethnic cleansing that took place in Myanmar, a country in Asia in which Facebook had no employees on the ground, had almost no employees that spoke the language, and they certainly had no expertise in either the politics or the culture of the country. And it became clear that the product was being used by bad actors to instigate an ethnic cleansing. And a different company, a different group of people might have taken that as a warning and might have said, you know, we really shouldn't be doing business in countries where we don't have an economic interest in having people on the ground, where we're not willing to invest in the language, where we're not willing to invest in the culture. That kind of thing is super obvious. The FBI warned Facebook in early 2019 that QAnon was a very dangerous extremist group. And they warned Facebook that there was a lot of recruiting going on on Facebook. And Facebook ignored it. Between 2019, spring of 2019 and the spring of 2020, about a one-year period, roughly 2 million people were radicalized into QAnon on Facebook. And again, that's based on Facebook admitting that there were at least 3 million members of QAnon groups by 2020, and internal Facebook reports released by the whistleblower that showed that 64% of the time when people join an extremist group on Facebook, mm -hmm. it's because Facebook recommended it. And so they were responsible for that. Those are things that a different group of people would have said, you know what, we don't want to be involved in that. Because if they'd taken action on QAnon, they might have prevented the insurrection. Because the people who participated in the insurrection had been radicalized into QAnon first. And again, all of these things are about the culture of the company. Do you prioritize the well-being of the people who use your product? Do you prioritize the well-being of the people affected by your product? And the reality was they viewed shareholder interest as the only thing that mattered. And so when it came time to thinking about their users or the other people affected by it, that just wasn't a consideration. And it's, that's certainly not unique to Facebook. What was unique to Facebook was the impact that it could have on those people either in a pandemic or in an election cycle or related to some kind of okay. extremism. So clearly you think her legacy is complicated and I think many people would agree with you. Let's talk about where Facebook or Meta is now going. I asked her about this pivot to the metaverse and whether having to create a whole new business model or evolve Facebook's current business model for a future that doesn't yet exist was one of the reasons she's leaving. Take a listen to what she told me when we spoke. We have a current business, which is our current apps connecting customers to businesses. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there right right now, but also over the long run. And then the metaverse is a much longer term business opportunity. And it's going to take some of the same form in that I believe we will be a place and then the metaverse will be a place where businesses and consumers connect. But I think the exact form that takes is something that will be figured out over the next number of years, a much longer term. How optimistic are you about Meta realizing this future of the metaverse, turning it into a business? And what do you think the company looks like without Sheryl Sandberg as it moves towards this new but, you know, very uncertain future? Yeah, Emily, I think Facebook's near term is complicated enormously by Apple's application tracking transparency and the whatever things that follow that, which give iPhone users the ability to opt out of having their data shared with Facebook and others. Facebook's already said that that's going to be a $10 billion hit to revenue this year. And it wouldn't shock me if the number got bigger than that, because I don't think Apple's done. Secondly, 
Instagram, which has really been supporting the growth of the business, is under assault from TikTok. And I do think that TikTok is essentially locking Instagram into the group of users it has today by siphoning off all the new entrants into social media. And that's really bad for Facebook's growth long term. And then you get to the metaverse, where I think Facebook's current concept of the metaverse is insane. Hmm. I mean, to my mind, virtual reality is a brilliant idea. And if you focus narrowly, if you say focus on video games, for example, the opportunities are unlimited. But the way Facebook's looking at it, where they're essentially going to try to replace reality with a virtual reality across every possible domain, entertainment, work, sports, the whole nine yards. To me, that's just, that's never going to work. And the amount of money they're spending on it today, I just think is certifiably insane. If I were a shareholder, I would be incensed about this because it's not that the metaverse is a terrible idea. It's that their idea of the metaverse is a terrible idea. And I, I don't think it matters how long they take. They're just, by the time they get there, it won't be interesting. Roger McNamee, Elevation Partners. Always great to have you here. Roger, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Now on to a Bloomberg exclusive. We've learned that Tiger Global's hedge fund has lost a whopping 52% this year. And in a letter to investors, the firm is vowing to try and earn that money back. Joining us now, Sebastian Malady, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. For more on this and the wider venture capital landscape, he is also the author of The Power Law, Capital and the Making of the New Future, a book on the rise of VC and Silicon Valley. Sebastian, so great to have you with us. I want to start on this Tiger Global news because you have pointed out that Tiger Global has been writing massive checks for companies with very little revenue. How big a problem has this been in Silicon Valley? I think it has been a problem. It's come with a lot of uh, weak governance, right? Because the Tiger Global model included uh, writing a huge check to somebody who was already running a unicorn. Uh, that person, of course, because they've created a unicorn, is a bit imperious. And then on top of that, you say, we don't want to go on your board. We're not going to exercise governance. And we defer to you because you are the founder and you're so great. I don't think that's a good way of overseeing companies, basically decide, I'm not going to oversee them. And that's why you had this governance vacuum for unicorns. That's why you see companies like WeWork or Uber, which actually started out pretty well in their early phases, go off the moral and commercial rails because nobody was manning the store on the board. So what's your read on this massive market correction and how it will impact venture capital and private companies? Well, clearly, it's bound to affect these late-stage growth investors like Tiger Global. First, because they were investing late, so the exit that was anticipated was only a year away. That's in the public markets, or the public markets correct by 25%, like the NASDAQ has done this year. Um, of course, your late-stage privates are going to go down with it. Second thing is that the cost of capital matters when you're writing a check for 100 million bucks, right? If you're doing early stage VC, you're writing a $10 million check. Uh, it doesn't matter so much what the interest rate is, but it is material when it gets to these very big checks that Tiger Global is writing. So they've faced the brunt of the correction. They've announced that they're going to move into doing earlier stage investing, do more seed and so forth. 
Uh, that's obviously a smart pivot if they know how to do seed, because it is a different discipline. And then the question for the broader venture capital business is, how does this ripple down the stack? You know, does it mean that Series C valuations go down a lot because Tiger Global is not willing to not willing to pay quite so much in Series E? If Series C goes down, does that mean Series A goes down? And there's a certain point, Emily, where there's a problem because the cost of hiring engineers is ultimately set by Google. If Google is going to continue paying a lot, then these startups have to pay a lot to get good engineers. And if that price is not reset, the price of talent, then you know a smaller venture capital check in a Series A is going to make it difficult for the company to work. Now, your book tells a riveting story of the history of venture capital, which you'll have to read if you want to learn more. You argue that Silicon Valley and venture capital is the main reason that Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley. How confident are you that other Silicon Valleys can emerge or are emerging elsewhere, whether it is Boston or Austin or New York or London or China? So I think the story up to around 2005 is basically that Silicon Valley venture capitalists had a special source that other people didn't understand. They had this power law approach where they were quite happy to write eight checks out of 10 that would end up losing money. And then a couple would have these extreme right tail power law returns that would make up for all the losers. And although that sounds a bit obvious now, before around 2005, VCs in Boston didn't really get it. VCs in New York mostly probably didn't get it either. And certainly nowhere else in the world, maybe with the exception of Israel, uh, did anybody get it. And then in 2005, American VCs from Silicon Valley went to China, then they moved into India, uh, the whole Israel ecosystem took off, Southeast Asia began, and during COVID, we've seen it spread to you know, Austin, Miami, and so forth. My belief is that the fundamental mindset of Silicon Valley venture capital is now spreading pretty much everywhere, and that as it arrives in different geographies, it transforms the attitude to entrepreneurship, people take more risk, and these startup cultures, which hitherto had been kind of concentrated in Silicon Valley, it's going to be everywhere. Now, we've been covering the big story of Sheryl Sandberg leaving Meta, and I've heard so many VCs over the years say, we're just trying to find the next Facebook. Facebook's story, of course, has gotten a lot more complicated, but what is going to drive the next cycle of venture capital and the quest to find the next Facebook, or maybe it's a next something else? Well, you know, Facebook was amazing because it was this software company that scaled unbelievably fast. And the characteristic of both SaaS and consumer software is that you don't need very much capital to have an enormous value creation effect, right? And if you're looking at something that can do an equivalent miracle, um, the most likely, frankly, is crypto, right? I know we've had this big correction recently, but if you think of the story of Uniswap, okay, a guy called Hayden is in his apartment in New York City, and he gets laid off from a engineering job at Siemens. And then he starts to write code because his flatmate, his housemate, is, is somebody who works for Ethereum. And he creates this automatic market maker, which goes on the Ethereum blockchain. And this individual, pretty much as an individual, creates a unicorn by himself. I mean, that's even more amazing than Instagram which was 13 people creating a unicorn. So I think if you're asking specifically what can do a Facebook-style value creation with enormous leverage on a small number of talented people, I think it's crypto. We will be watching. 
If it is indeed. Sebastian Malaby, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, author of a new book, Power Law. Please check it out. Thanks, Sebastian. We'll have much more ahead. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. A few other stories we continue to watch. Ford is investing $3.7 billion in factories across three Midwestern U.S. states to pump out more electric cars and traditional gas-fueled cars in a sweeping expansion that will create 6,200 union jobs. Five Ford plants will be expanded to produce more hot sellers like the electric F-150 Lightning pickup and roll out new models, including a new battery-powered commercial car. Plus, the crypto business run by billionaire brothers Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss is making its first ever job cuts. Gemini Trust is slashing 10% of its staff as trading across the industry plunges. In a memo obtained by Bloomberg, the brothers blamed the job cuts on what they called crypto winter. 
last year. Gemini said it raised $400 million in a round of funding that valued the company at $7.1 billion. Coming up, my exclusive conversation with former Facebook board member Don Graham on Sheryl Sandberg's departure and what he thinks is next for a woman he's known for more than 20 years. He joins us next. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in New York. Shares of the electric truck maker Nikola Rising, Bloomberg reporting the latest twist in the story of the company's founder. Trevor Milton, who had to resign as chair last year amid regulatory probes, voted against the company at its annual meeting to issue more stock. Our Ed Ludlow broke that story and has all the details on what it means. Ed? Yeah, so the proposal at the annual general meeting was to include the shares out, uh, in, increase the shares outstanding from 600 million to 800 million, meaning down the line Nikola could sell equity to raise money. Now, the biggest shareholder, the former chairman, the founder, Trevor Milton, according to sources, voted against that measure. And it's really hard to understand why. On the one hand, he wouldn't want to dilute his own holdings and diminish the value of his holdings. On the other, Voting against that could inhibit the company from raising money, which means the company suffers and down the line the shares fall. Oh, there he is in the screen. We've all been wondering where he is because he faces trial next month, you'll remember, Emily, uh, accused of deceiving investors and exaggerating about the company's technology and claims he made about the company's performance. What's also interesting is a lot of retail investors are really into this stock. So the other problem that Nikola had at its AGM, and one of the reasons they had to adjourn it, is because nobody voted. They needed a majority of the outstanding stock to vote on the clause to pass it. But even though Trevor Milton voted no, they still didn't get enough shareholders to vote, generally speaking. So this is a stock that's not fed as badly as others here today. It's getting back on its feet. It's trying to get over the ghost of Trevor Milton. But this was an interesting road block and a twist in the story that we probably didn't expect. All right, Ed, thanks for the update. I want to get back now to the impending departure of Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, now Meta's chief operating officer. This is a role she's held for the last 14 years, growing the company into what it is today. I spoke with her ahead of the announcement and she told me how she came to the decision and how she feels about the company as she leaves it. This was a decision I made that I did not come to lightly, and it really is about how I will spend my time, not how much I believe in the company. I believe in the company as much as I ever did, and staying on the board, and I really have complete confidence in the team Mark and I have built. I think they're going to do a great job building the future. For a company that's a huge part of my life and a huge part of my heart. Joining me now... Donald Graham. He served on Facebook's board for seven years. He was also the lead independent director when the company went public, and he's known Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg since the early 2000s. He's also the former publisher, of course, of the Washington Post and chair of Graham Holdings. Don, so great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. Tell us about that Sheryl Sandberg you met all those years ago in 2001 and what you make of her leaving at this moment today. I met Cheryl in November, December of 2000, mm. 
when uh, I was fishing around as the Clinton administration went out of office to see if there were any business-minded people who wanted to stay in Washington, maybe work for a business. So uh, I offered Cheryl a job at the Washington Post at that point. I knew she was a super hot property. Every single person I talked to in the White House said, this is the person you got to get. It is, ironically, she was offered jobs both by me and by Arthur Salzberger, the publisher of the New York Times. So Cheryl had her choice between the New York Times and the Washington Post and was crazy enough to pick this Google place that she thought might have a future. So she went off to Silicon Valley. We stayed in touch. I called on her when, whenever I would go out there. And then I tried to hire her again uh, uh, in 2007. I tried to get her to come back to our company, this time as president. Uh, I felt that I knew that our company badly needed somebody who knew a lot about technology. And Cheryl, Cheryl knew both a lot about technology and a lot about advertising and knew every big advertiser in the United States. So that would have been quite good. Uh, she couldn't do that because she was married to Dave Goldberg, who was making a career as a CEO in Silicon Valley. So then uh, later on, she and Mark both called me when she was thinking about going to Facebook. It's clear you think very highly of her. For many I people, do. I think she has a complicated legacy. The critics think she didn't do enough to address the negative consequences of Facebook. What do you think? I, you know, 14 years isn't that long a time, but let us start with Facebook when Sheryl Sandberg joined it. I, 2008, when she joined, happened to be the year that she and Mark invited me to join their board. So I went out to Facebook for the first time in late 2008. Advertising at Facebook at this point consisted of three little three-line ads on your homepage, one of which always used the word belly fat, there was absolutely not a brand advertising on, uh, on Facebook at that point. There was next to no revenue because there were next to no ads that advertisers could buy. And uh, Cheryl, as Mark had to build Facebook, Cheryl had to build its business. Uh, it is not too strong to say that in 2008, the business, the revenue, the advertising didn't interest Mark a lot. And Cheryl had to hire the people who were going to turn Facebook into an actual business, build the business, make it work for advertisers. And I knew one, uh, I had one odd status on the board. I was the only person who came from an advertising supported <laughs> bit. And I knew that advertising, if you had good advertising, it made television or newspapers or Facebook better for users. If you had terrible advertising, it made it worse for users. So Cheryl, uh, I watched Cheryl build that business and it was pretty awesome. David Kirkpatrick wrote that Mark Zuckerberg brought Cheryl Sandberg on board in part because of her experience in governance and to help Facebook govern itself one day and also to help build a bridge to Washington. This is another thing that the critics seem to think she failed to do. You are at the center of power in Washington. How do you think she excelled at that part of the role? Well, again, I would go back and ask another set of questions. Uh, how many people can you name, Emily, with your deep knowledge of American business who are 
made an made uh, an enormous record as a number two of a company currently. How many one two teams are there uh, that built big businesses where you know the number two as well as you know the number one? Very uh, few. I, yeah, Very I knew few. people. You know, Don Keogh and Roberta Gazetta is the first one that comes to mind at Copac, who had a had a fantastic run, but. Uh, what always strikes me about Cheryl is that as one of the, as Silicon Valley royalty is the, really the number three or four person at Google, she went to work for a 23-year-old. She had the courage to say, I think Facebook is going to be important. I think Mark is a good person and I'm going to go work with him and see what we can build together. But they, again, you have to remember that when she enters the company, there's almost nothing there. There is very little revenue, very little advertising, and very little team. And she has to build that just as Mark is building the product. Right. And she talked about that when I spoke with her yesterday. She was 38. He was 23. It was a leap, a big leap of faith. Um, I asked her what she's going to do next. She talked about her philanthropy, focusing on women's advocacy, spending more time with her family, getting married this summer. I asked about business in particular and politics and whether we will see her in another business role or a political role. Take a listen to what she had to say. I learned a long time ago, never make any predictions about the future, but I think, I think a lot of that is pretty unlikely. And I'm really, I really think there's a lot, hopefully, uh, that I can do with my foundation philanthropically. What do you think she'll do next, Don? Or maybe you know, will, will we see her again no, in business or politics? <laughs> don't know because I'll guarantee you Sheryl Sandberg doesn't know. Mm. But you are correct, Emily, when you said that Facebook's, you know, Facebook, Sheryl had 14 years at Facebook, eight of which were people couldn't say enough great things about Facebook and about her. And for the last six years, Facebook has been the subject of, a, of an unusual amount of criticism. I think both the praise and the criticism got a little overheated. But Cheryl is leaving at a time when Facebook is down in reputation, although up in business. And, it'll, you know, she doesn't know what she's going to do next. She doesn't know what she's going to be doing five years from now or 10 years from now. But she is young. She is incredibly talented. And whatever she does in the rest of her life, she'll do it very well. She'll make an enormous impact. She's written two best-selling books while she was also the COO of uh, Facebook. And I have a feeling that that, will, that that will continue to be a part of her life. It'll be, it'll be a very impressive life. Uh, uh, ambitious, indeed. You wrote an op-ed, Don, in 2019 titled, Why I Still Have Faith in Facebook. Do you still have faith in Facebook today? Knowing the critiques, knowing the, uh, the, the, the negative consequences, do you have faith in Facebook without Sheryl Sandberg? And do you believe in the metaverse? Uh, it, 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 Emily, I was an insider at Facebook for seven years. I left the board in 2015. I haven't been an insider since then. I am not party to their discussions. I don't know in depth any of the most recent business issues you're referring to. Yes, I have faith in Facebook. Uh, I think Mark is a, a very good CEO. I think Mark Zuckerberg is a very good person. I think Sheryl Sandberg is a very good person. They have faced decisions that would be daunting for anybody. There's never been anything like Facebook, just as there's never been anything like Google or Amazon or Apple. And they've done their best. I know that I know 
that they've always done it in a principled manner. And yes, I, I, I still have faith in Mark outlined a team under him, almost all of whom I know. It's a team of very good, very highly principled, very admirable people who've been at Facebook for most of them for eight or 10 years or more. Chris Cox, who, whom Mark referred to, who runs product at Facebook, uh, is uh, someone you should have on your air. He is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. He left for a time because he didn't like certain business decisions, talked it over with Mark, returned in the same role. You couldn't, the, Facebook has deep issues to address. You couldn't have better people addressing them than Facebook has. Chris Cox will be up next. Uh, I'm gonna send him that clip, Don, and see if he'll join us. Don Graham, uh, former Facebook board member, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, important to have your rich historical perspective on the company and Mark and Cheryl, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bitcoin rebounded after slumping along with stocks Thursday, met some resistance at the $30,000 level where it's been trading for the last month. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld here with more on this. Katie, take it away. Can't break the spell. Can't break the spell. Did have a good day today. I mean, tech stocks rose, so Bitcoin did as well. Like you said, over 2% on Thursday, right around that $30,000 per coin level. And that's important because Bitcoin's been stuck there for the better part of a month, really since we saw the blow up of that Terra stable coin. It feels like a long time ago, but it was only a month ago. So if we can sustainably break above $30,000 per coin, you do have some technical analysts saying that there's more blue sky on the charts, but I mean, it's been a really rough go. We've really been mired here, and we're still down 35% so far this year. And the story about Gemini, mm -hmm. layoffs, hiring freezes, you know, it seems like what's happening at, you know, general tech companies and tech startups is starting to infect the crypto market as well. Yeah, like the point you just made, you're seeing this across the startup industry, but particularly in crypto right now. Actually, before the show, I saw news break that Coinbase, it's extending its hiring pause. That had been announced two weeks ago, but then we just got news that actually they're going to rescind a number of accepted job offers, just very painful. And that was hours after we got that Gemini news that they plan to lay off up to 10% of its workforce first. And remember, in April, Robinhood laying off 9% of their workforce. So this drawdown that we're seeing, it goes obviously beyond the price of the coins, beyond the equity shares in some cases. It includes layoffs, hiring freezes, reduced spending and investment. It's all playing out in crypto right now. Is there a silver lining? Silver lining depends on who you ask, but it did catch my uh, eye. There was a fantastic Bloomberg News article today about crypto political donations, actually. It is full steam ahead. The last three months and all of 2021, that spending totaled about $26 million, which is amazing because if you compare it to other industries, it only falls behind the investment industry. That political donation, that's more than you saw from big tech, big pharma, defense, uh, crypto really stepping up ahead of the the midterm election, so we could see it grow even more. But what is also interesting, that the biggest individual spender, Sam Bakeman-Fried, he is the founder of FTX, of course. He overall has pumped in about $32 million. That is 75% of the crypto industry's total giving. Wow, SBF of FTX making waves yet again. Okay, Katie, thank you. Coming up, tackling career development as we navigate a tight 
labor market and a potential downturn, as we were just discussing. We'll talk about all that and more with Guild Education. Just hit a $4.4 billion valuation. Guild's founder, Rachel Carlson, with me next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Guild Education just announced $175 million in new funding, hitting a $4.4 billion valuation. The company partners with the likes of Macy's and Walmart to create new growth opportunities for employees. This at a time when there are so many open jobs, which begs the question, where are the workers? Let's talk about all this and more with Guild Education co-founder and CEO Rachel Carlson. So, Rachel, on the one hand, there are open jobs. On the other, there are layoffs and hiring freezes. How do we square these two trends? You know, I 
I think at some level, I remember you and others talking about the K-shaped economy at the beginning of COVID. I think that K is now inverting into the X. So the the layoffs, everything we're talking about, those are happening in tech and in sectors that rode the COVID wave. But for the average frontline worker, uh, that's not what they're experiencing. They're uh, 65% of frontline workers are talking about looking for new work. The um, great resignation remains. And for most of those workers, it's no longer about pay. They've seen meaningful pay wage increase to the $15 an hour. They're looking for career advancement and they're going to companies that'll prepare them for the future of work. So how many workers who get up through, upskilled through Guild are moving to th these open jobs? Yeah, so we're really fortunate that we find that um, of the workers that we serve, somebody who engages in a learning program while at work relative to their peer who has the same job title but doesn't learn, the learner has a 2.6x greater increase of being promoted on the job. And at some companies like Chipotle, you see that increase get all the way up into the 7x, so 700% higher likelihood of getting promoted on the job, which obviously achieves the economic mobility that so many frontline workers are looking for. Now, big raise today, and I'm just so curious whether you ran into some of these market conditions as you were doing this fundraise, did it close before all the volatility uh, we've seen? And, and how do you plan to conserve this cash that you now have in this macro environment? Uh, you know, I've been quoting my mom during the fundraise. And she always talks about rainy day savings accounts, which is what we went out to raise. And we kind of did it on a rainy day. So, yes, it was an odd time to be pursuing a fundraise, but it was the right move for us. We often at Guild talk about our 100-year goals and what does it take to build an enduring company. And so we're calling this rainy day funding. It's not savings or, excuse me, it's not spending money, as my mom would say. It's to make sure that we can achieve the goals we want many years years from now and and we're raising it uh, with a mind towards cost discipline not a goal to go spend it or change our budgets now there have been some questions about guilds business and how often it really does take employees to the next level how are you addressing that yeah, I mean, we're thrilled with the outcomes that we see from our working adult learners. Um, obviously, working adult learners move slower, and so we do need to change our mindset about how we measure their outcomes. Um, higher ed's trained to say, how fast do you graduate? And, and that matters, but we think about graduation as an input and economic mobility as the outcome. And so when our learners are advancing, and you know, interestingly enough, a large percentage of our learners see a promotion even before they complete their program. And that's not how the typical professor or higher ed institution thinks. But if you move away from a degree-based world to a skills-based world, you can get rewarded for those skills even before you complete the degree. So we're trying to change the paradigm of how we think about how do we reward people for the skills and the advancement that they want to see in their career. I'd love to get your thoughts on Sheryl Sandberg. You know, obviously, it's kind of a big historical moment, her leaving Meta, uh, you know, after 14 years and writing Lean In. And, you know, I know for many women and many women in business, she's a role model. She's also a very controversial figure, and some people don't necessarily buy into the Lean In mentality. What, what, what's your take? I mean, what does Sheryl Sandberg sort of symbolize to you? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about female leadership of late. As you know, Oprah joined this round, and I often talk about her as my my favorite model of empathetic leadership. To talk then about Cheryl and many others, like we need lots of models of female leadership. There, men for hundreds of thousands of years have had a whole catalog of different models to choose from and find what feels authentic to each individual as a leader. You can't be what you can't see. And so I think having strong female leaders with a whole variety of leadership styles is super critical, especially for those of us in an industry where fewer than 2% of us in the venture space are female. Absolutely. So how do you spend, plan to spend this money or do you plan to maybe spend it a little more slowly than you might have in a different environment? quickly. Yes. So if, you know, if my mom's watching, I, we committed, this is a rain, this is a rainy day fund. We're not spending it. We're not changing our budget this year. Um, but we're, you know, we're solving a societal problem at Guild that's going to last for many decades to come. And so we're thinking about how do we fund our business into perpetuity, not how do we fund it for this year, but we, what we are maintaining in an, in a time of uncertainty, as many other companies are changing their plans, we're maintaining our commitments, um, first to ensure that we're capturing all the amazing employer momentum we're seeing. Okay. Far more companies are now ready to take this jump and fund their employees going back to school. And then we're really advancing in okay. career development, making sure that all of our members can advance. Rachel, thanks for joining us. And shout out to your mom. She's jumping up and down right now. Rachel Carlson, CEO of Guild. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Emily Chang in New York. This is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.